One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to a really special episode of the Neuro Show where Jesse and I are joined by Cam Nichols. In the show, we go through Cam's entire bike history. Which bikes did he love? Which bikes did he hate? The latest on the fiberglass in the carbon fiber bike build controversy. Training over 40 years old. And does Cam have any regrets on YouTube? All right, let's get into it. Now, if you can remember, Cam, you've ridden a lot of bikes. So Chris has gone through and painstakingly pulled them, well, most of them out, I think. So if yep. you're willing, can we go through and ask you about every frame you've ridden and you give us your, your two-sentence wrap-up on it? The elevator pitch. I'll, I'll try because, yeah, it's been a while since I've ridden some of them um, and mm-hmm. it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to, to remember the right experience, but I'll go for it. Yeah, go for it. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Let's start at the top. Giant TCR rim brake, that yellow one. Yep. Uh, super stiff. Slightly uncomfortable, lightweight, um, annoying with the ISP. You got to saw the saddle, and it was hard to resale. Yeah, is that so? Is that the is the that the bike, bike you're on, on, Jesse? Yeah, yeah. And the ISP makes the makes it stiffer compared to the regular clamped one because there's less there's less compliance in there. Fair. That's pretty much what that bike is. <laughs> it's a stiff, <laughs> lightweight climbing Tick. bike. <laughs> well. So did you have that, you had that set up with Mechanica, it, that, that was a bit of a mainstay, wasn't it? Like that was the, that was the channel's bike for, for a good while. It was like being compared, you were comparing it to all, all your other things. A lot of the bike fit videos seem to be on that. Like that was the real baby. It, it, what that bike taught me about YouTube is uh, as well, like it, it was to a certain degree. I also had this, the LA Sprint before that, which was, you know, arguably I used that for, for longer. Um, but, uh, it was interesting when I bought that bike and I started to incorporate the bike in the title, just into my content. And even though I wasn't reviewing the bike, the bike was obviously in the content and it was in the title, like my first race on a giant TCR, I bought the giant TCR and then this happened. I just really noticed like this shift in, in viewership and interest in my video. It was just like, go like, you know, an extra 30, 40, 50%. And that, that kind of commenced a bit of a a rabbit hole for me where a lot of my content, let's face it, like if I make content about me sitting at my computer and editing a video or I'm going taking the kids to the park, like, you know, it's going to want to see that. But if it's about a bike and the bike's involved and the family's there, it just makes it a lot more interesting because people like either like the giant TCR as they ride or they're thinking about purchasing it. So mm. that's when I think about that bike, that's what I think about. There's a whole spate where it's like the, my new giant TCR race bike was dirt cheap. My first race on a giant TCR. <laughs> Crashing my new giant TCR. Checklist for buying a giant TCR. <laughs> my go. giant TCR has a new home. I'm like, okay, 
The guy likes his giant TCR. We get it. Right. The, the, the Terminator is going to be on to me in your next episode. Yeah. He's going to terminate me. Yeah. Oh, we'll get we'll get to that. Uh, get to so that. you brought it up there. And right, next oh, you, one you brought up LA Sprint Specialized. How's that one sit? Oh, nice. Yeah, that's it for an alloy bike. Very stiff. Uh, uncomfortable in a different way to carbon. I'd say more jarring. Um, but I liked the stability and strength to throw it around and not care so much, like take it over, you know, to Adelaide for the tour down and to put it in a bike bag, etc. And the the thing that I like, I there was a goal I had for a while. I know this isn't your two sentence answer, but I have fond memories of this bike because I was trying so hard to win an A grade criterium. Yeah, you know, I made it through all the grades. And I got to A grade. I'm like, oh, this is just an, another level. I'm never going to win one. And I kind of had that attitude for a while. And then I thought, I'm going to really try and win one. And I had that bike with um, Shimano 105 Mechanical. And I was racing A grade, trying to win an A grade trip on an alloy bike with Shimano 105. And there's only one race where I almost got second, like I almost podiumed. And, <laughs> and like 20 minutes before the finish line, like, Five guys went past me, so I didn't, but it was on that bike, so I have fond memories of that bike. Nice. I, I, I had a rider, awesome. I coach, reach out and say that um, actually the alloy is more comfortable than his carbon bike, but you, you, you definitely feel like the sprint was not as compliant? Well, this the, I've heard that. Um, the sprint, uh, sorry, the alloy, yeah, it was the specialized alloy sprint was was designed to be stiff and aggressive and a bit of a crit bike so i think um the layup or i don't know how they even you know manufacture aluminium is, is designed to be that way and it certainly was like if i took it for 100 plus k's i'd, I'd feel it in the neck and shoulders and, and the lower back compared to say a carbon bike okay um before I, yeah if i just quickly if i had my five bike garage that's that's in my five bike garage that's your crit bike chris is it throw that in there yep nice yep, yep. um Oh, okay, before we move on to the next one, you, one of those was rim brake and one of those was disc brake. If you had to have one bike now to race on, would it be disc or rim? Poor. That's a really hard question. You, I wasn't prepared for that one. We uh, have to bring it in somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No one cares about disc brake and rim brake, Jesse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, weren't you saying that this morning? I was watching it yeah. on, the, on the trainer and now you're, you're throwing it at me. I wasn't expecting it. Um, I'd say rim brake just because, look, the only time you ever want disc brake is if you're going downhill um, and it's raining, in my opinion. Um, so I would say uh, rim. But I've sold, as I think Durian Rider has, has thrown me under the bus a few times, I've heard, um, you know, they're, they're selling out to the industry. Um, yeah, I've just given up. I moved on. I'm like, okay, we're on disc brakes, whatever. Let's just do it. Yep, that's But me. you prefer yeah. rim. <laughs> okay, he's a, he's a rim brake um, ally. I, I do prefer yes. rim, yeah. Uh, next one, Chapter Two Rare. That was the one by really? build, wasn't it? The SRAM one by one, one by nice. build, which I've got the same one by on the the wind space now. Um, that but uh, I would say incredible descender. And if you looked at the frame geometry, Mike Pride, who runs Chapter Two, um, he he was a downhill like champion in New Zealand or something like that. And all his bikes have these small triangles like a downhill bike. So at downhills. The speed was incredible. One of the best descenders I've ever ridden. Um, definitely, you get that aerodynamic, um, you know, capacity and bunch rides and rolling turns. You get that sort of, you know, momentum coming out of a turn, and uh, very soft for it for an aero bike. Quite, you know, comfortable and soft. Not not as stiff yeah. as most like Cannondale System Six or Cervelo S Five. They're like a plank of wood. So completely complete opposite yeah. to those. 
Now, he goes into the world of BMC and the Team Machine rim brake, the red the red one. Yep. Am I allowed to talk? <laughs> People are just going to go, oh, course you yeah. that. You're getting paid. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Well, neither, neither Jesse and I have either ridden a BMC, so... Right. You can you've, say anything. We, we won't be able to correct you. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, look, that, that bike was a, just a... Like, for an all-round race bike, just a comfort machine. I, I kind of wondered why they needed the road machine with that. Not that I've, road, I've ridden the road machine with that bike. Um, Probably a bit too soft at the back end. They obviously... BMC mm. is the one that started the drop seat stays, and it creates quite a... You know, there's a lot yep. more compliance in the, the seat um, post, seat tube. That then goes into the post. So, a bit too soft in the rear, um, I found at times. And uh, it was just missing, say, compared to like a Specialized or like a, you know, SL, SL6 at the time, I think it was its competitor, or a Scott Addict RDC. Like, it just felt like it was missing a little bit of zip. Like, it didn't have that the aerodynamics, which I've since changed. So, I always felt when I got on that bike, incredibly stiff, great climber, go all day. But I always felt like I was just missing out on a little bit of speed and I was just a touch too comfortable. We, we were chatting about it a, a couple of weeks ago, why the pro team runs the road machine, not the time machine. Do you have any ideas why they do that? Uh, you mean the team machine over the... So, the road machine oh, is the yes, endurance? Yes, yes. Team machine? Um, look, I, I, I'd... I just think it's a far superior bike. I've ridden the the, the time machine, and um, it's you know it's a little on the heavy side. Not a great climber. Um, if you've got it in a straight line, like a, a flat stage, I don't know why you wouldn't. Um, but you know the BMC team machine. You know, it's, I said it before. I partnered with BMC. It's my favourite bike of all time. It's just such a comfortable. Um, it's a stiff, comfortable armchair, which kind of doesn't make sense. They've done it so well. So I don't know. Like I can understand why you would pick that bike over the time machine. That might change in the next few months because I did just update it. Yes, so looks like we'll, that. We'll, we'll oh, I'd be surprised if they it, weren't running them all in. in the tour because they had it at the Dauphiné, the new um, time machine. Uh, Merida Reacto. What spec was this? I don't remember this one, actually. Um, I, I've ridden them both. I, I rode sort of the... I was. It's just They've got two top, types of frames. So I've ridden both the frames. It was the mid-tier one I compared to the, the, the wind space and the giant propel mid-tier as well. And I've ridden the top-tier frame but with a lower-end group set. Um, that's, uh, you know, super stiff. Um, once again, really good aerodynamics in a bunch coming out of a draft. Um, bit of a brick up hills. I like, I know most aero bikes aren't good up hills, but there's like a, a proper brick category. Um, and yep. that's, that's in the proper brick category. So, you know, yep. great descender, but as I say, you got to go up the hills to come down. And so it kind of almost becomes null and void. I liked this video. So these were the, the, the Cannondale run so we had the system six and you tested also the you had the system six and you had a super six those two yellow ones yeah um um thoughts on those yeah so and look once this is just all my opinion just make sure someone's going to say oh yeah but such a different experience and i get that um of course but to me that the the system six is the fastest bike i have i've ever ridden um but it's also like was the most unforgiving it was just like as I said, a stiff plank of wood. Like I'm, I feel like you know I'm I'm not very good at cycling with a lot of things. In fact, most things. But if I'm if I'm okay at one thing, I can roll turns in a bunch. You know what I mean? I can I can be polite and you know roll over well without you know leaving too much of a gap. On this bike, I was going to say, but and people were yelling at me because I'd come out of a draft and I'd just be like giving them a full coat hanger. Um, so that 
that bike has fond memories for its speed, not so much for its comfort. And that was my fastest ever time up my little closed road segment I do up here on a low wind day called Gindia Drive, which is about a three or 4% gradient. So even on the climbing, it was pretty good. Um, the Super 6 was uh, quite soft, um, really probably a little bit overly soft for me um, at the front end and at the rear. Um, and as a result of that, it, if you can't, when it's soft in certain places, it might be stiff in other places, but you feel you'll lose that stiffness. So, um, and I think as well, because I jumped from one bike to the next, they're so different, you know, it, it's sort of exacerbated um, one feature to the next. So I don't, yeah, I don't have such fond memories of the the Super 6. I feel like the System 6 suffered a bit in terms of, uh, the kind of backlash against heavy aero bikes just in the overall chat, whereas it, I honestly do think it is a super fast bike and that we may look back at it and go, oh, like that was a little bit underrated at the time. But it's certainly because it, was, it wasn't it was light, like it was probably eight kilos or close enough too. Um, but for a lot of guys who do a lot of that kind of riding that you were talking about, the big bunch fast riding – Man, it would be the perfect rig for that. Mm. I think it was. I think it was seven point five kilos. Then we start down the, the rabbit hole opens, Cam, and we start with the wind space. So the I think it was the blue one. The, is it the TI five thousand five hundred? Uh yeah, the T fifteen hundred. Uh yeah, look T fifteen hundred. Yep. It's it's funny, like. I, I made a bit of a mistake with the wind space because I didn't I didn't want to they were they were going to give me the frame I think it was going to be my first ever frame that I got given, um but I said look I don't want to say that I've been given it so can I pay you a hundred dollars USD, um so I yeah. paid him a hundred dollars USD for the for the frame and the wheels and uh it didn't like so many people thought I was in bed with wind space at the time it was out of control I remember having it in the background of an RCA video because I always just pick whatever bike and I put it in the back back of a video. Yeah. And, Someone was saying, oh, you know, getting paid by wind space. I was just like, never been paid by wind space. And if you actually watch the videos on the wind space, I never really had a great experience. Like, I know a lot of people do like the bike and rate it. Um, I, I, it, it was, took it to Gary. It was definitely built well, like the construction, they're taking care with, um, you know, how they manufactured it. But in terms of the engineering, it was their first generation. You know what I mean? We're comparing a yeah. first generation engineered frame versus some of these mainstream brands, which are onto their fourth or fifth generation. And they've got four or five engineers, you know, that work in the department. So it's hard, to, it's really hard to compare. And I felt, well, like it definitely felt like an aero bike, but it just, it felt a bit like, particularly at the rear, it just felt a bit sluggish. And it had this weird, Plank of wood. it's called frog leg, frog leg, frog legged chain stays, um, which hmm. I kind of have never seen on an aero bike before. And yeah, I'd, so I'm I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. I just I didn't have a great experience with that bike myself. Was it was it disc or rim? It was disc. I find it it's kind of important because I I feel like the way a bike rides is very important. It's one of the gripes I have with the, with the elves in that there's still so few people that have really ridden it a lot and provided their thoughts. And it's really important. I mean, a bike can be aero and look cool, but how it actually rides is way more important. So it's interesting with the wind space that you didn't really feel it was, yeah, up to par in terms of how it's riding. Yeah, and look, I, I did, because there was a, you know people didn't like so much that that was my feedback, I, I went a step further and I compared it to 
the Marita Reacto mid-tier model, uh, the Giant Propel mid-tier model, uh, they're all um, with, you know, the, the group set and the wheels that were on the wind space, they're all in that sort of five to six grand category, um, AUD. And I did all the speed tests on them and it turns out the wind space was just, just as quick. So it was just how I personally felt on the bike. Um, in terms of that one there, do you want me to tell you Please what it's like yeah. to ride? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I've, the review will come out in the next week or so. Um, well, it depends on when this video comes out. But have you ever, the, the way I'm describing this bike, have you ever ridden a bike that's too big mm -hmm. for you? H how did it feel? My description would be you can be sitting in, in the bike or on the bike. I like to be sitting on the bike in control. And a bike that's slightly too big, I feel like I'm sitting in it in a way. It's the only way I can kind of explain it. I've downsized that from a 54 to a 52 um, to give myself more um, seat seat post because the whole top tube's been elevated, right? So the, the standover mm. height is significantly higher than any other bike that I've ever ridden. Um, mm. the, the seat tube is significantly higher. I've measured the, the forks compared to all the other bikes I've got in this room here, which are 54s, not 52s. The forks are 20 millimeters longer. Like everything about it is is big. So it rides like a big bike. You know, it's incredible down a hill. Like it's, it feels super safe and solid. Like I hit 90 Ks an hour. Normally I start getting that sort of nervous tension when I'm going, you know, anything over 85, 90. And I, I didn't even notice that I got back from my ride and Strava. Oh, 90 Ks an hour. When did I hit 90 Ks an hour? So it feels really safe descending, but you know, cornering tight, aggressive situations, it, it feels cumbersome. Um, that if you don't care so much about that and you just want a bike that goes really really well in a straight line um and it looks like a beast perfect but if you know you don't like what you know we've just talked about then probably not the right bike for you no that's that's really interesting and ultimately like any any ride review jesse and this is always my issue with i know you really like that and you really like that in a review it's just such a subjective thing like the way that cam cam experiences that bike potentially is very different to the way I experience that bike. And that's, I think, why a lot of people avoid that discussion because the first comment's going to be, well, I didn't have mm. that experience and they probably didn't. Mm. But no, that's cool. That's cool. Can we can we move on to potentially the complete opposite, which was your Factor O2, was it a VAM? Or Yeah, this is the one that stands out in my mind. Um and look, I've moved on from that now and I can be probably a bit more open and, and transparent because I, I, I did, I probably held back in that review. Um, I couldn't believe how flexy that frame was. Now, I was trying to be kind in, mm. in the fact that, you know, I'm saying I'm 80 kilos, maybe it's designed for somebody who's, who's 10, 10 kilograms lighter and, and I'm hoping that that's the case. But I, I, someone in one of my comments and I couldn't find it for the review because I was thinking about pulling up. Someone said, I'll be really interested to get your take on the, the the ride feel of this bike because to me it feels like a wet pool noodle. And like I know that's a harsh thing to say, but for a bike that costs so much, um, that's supposed to be stiff, it was stiff in the bottom bracket area, but you, you literally, like I could shake the handlebars and the whole thing would just be like wobbling. And you get out of the saddle yeah. and it was, yeah, I've never experienced anything like it. And that's why, you know, in the review, I, I did, outline that and say maybe it's because i'm 80 kilos maybe it's better suited to a rider 70 kilos sub 70 kilos and um maybe it is mm. but that, that was my experiences with it did you have the black ink bar and stem on there i did 
Mm. Yeah, I thought I thought yeah. that that bar was quite flexy as well compared to other very. bars. Very soft. You could really bend it. Um, so the whole bite. Um, I I mean I, I put some Caden um, like ridiculously light wheels on it as well because it was a light wheel. Uh, so the wheels would have been contributing to that, mm. no doubt. But yeah, the frame was very flexy. Yeah, I mean that's what it's for. It's made to it's designed to go up a hill fast at three hundred watts. That doesn't. If it does that well, and that's what it's being marketed as, and yeah, I guess it's fair enough. Does does Israel use it though? They don't use it. I haven't seen them use it recently. Was it yeah. just? I mean, I rode the Factor O2 non-VAM a year or two before that, and I really, really liked it. It was stiff, and it was it kind of felt like a mini specialized. Whereas this, that the O2 VAM was just this really, you know, soft, flexy on a ride feel. Can we move on to the SLR01? The the uh, the or- is that the orange one? I think. Yep. Yeah. So, look, what they did well is I, I felt like they tightened that back end experience, which was a bit soft on the red one. Like, so it's not as soft. It's still like with the BMC team machine. I don't. I won't run twenty eights because it makes it too soft. For example, I only run twenty five tires on the team machine. Um, so I think twenty fives go perfect with the team machine. And they created camtail tube shapes to make it a little bit more like the time machine and they did integrated bottle cages. So that zippiness that it didn't have, I felt, they actually improved that. So everything that I kind of wanted in that bike from the red one, I felt they gave it to us in the orange one. And yeah, I, I just think it's a, that's why I said it's the best bike I've ever ridden. Personally, I just, I love the bike. Interesting one, the giant Propel. So this is the previous generation Propel which I think it's both gross. you and I, Jesse, so have shat on. I said, not sat on, I said <laughs> shat on. Um, can, you, can you offer us a different opinion, Cam, potentially? Yeah, so so remind us of your opinion, just for those who missed the, the, your original opinion. Oh, um, it, it was a slightly heavy, well, a, a heavier aero bike, and it was a, it was a heri- he- heavier aero bike where I really felt that weight. It took a long time to get up to speed, and it didn't the off the trade off didn't seem to come in any stiffness either. So I seemed to be losing out in weight, losing out in stiffness, and I wasn't sure where I was getting any any benefits from. I just and personal experience, I just never rode well on it. But anyway, okay. that's another story. I just thought it was ugly. Jesse? Yeah, I like the look. <laughs> and people said it didn't ride very well, and I think it was it was too stiff. I think it was similar bucket to uh, the the System 6, which is, would be faster than the Propel or the, the uh, Reacto, just the ride of it from reviews that I've read on forums. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, had a, I interestingly had a – I mean, I had the mid-tier model because I've got two different layups, carbon layups. I've got the top of the line and, and the mid-tier. You buy the mid-tier with, you know, Altegra Mechanical, I think I bought it with, um, and it was like five and a half grand. So that's the one I, I test rode. And I had a, like, out of the, because I was testing it against the Windspace and the Merida mid-tier model, and I actually liked the Giant, surprisingly, because I agree with you, Jesse, it, it looks horrendous. And the front-end bars as well, just, it's, I don't know who designed that. But um, oh, once I swapped gross. the tires out, because everyone, when I bought that bike, said, you've got to get rid of the Giant tires, they're shit. And I'm like, no, I can't be bothered doing that. Like, I don't like doing things with my hands. And of course, I get a flat tire, um, you know, and it was tubeless. And I, I can't stand riding tubeless because every time I try to ride it, I get, I get a flat. So I'll change the tires over, um, put a tube in there to some trial ones. It actually improved the ride experience. Like, I'm not a 
I don't go deep on tires. Some people are like, oh, you got to run this and run that. It's amazing. And I was like, whatever. But with this particular bike, it really improved the ride experience. And um, I didn't find it overly stiff. I found it quite comfortable. I didn't have that issue up hills that you described, Chris, although I probably didn't take it on like super steep climbs. I'm talking three, 4% grade where sometimes aero bikes can, I, th- I find it that three or 4% grade on aero bikes. That's kind of like the tipping point. Like if you go to five or 6%, then you're like, oh, okay, now I'm really noticing I'm on an aero bike. Whereas three, 4%, you're going just fast enough to get the aerodynamic benefits. Um, so yeah, I was, I, I was a fan. I, I, outside of aesthetically and I'd never buy it. The ride experience was okay. I was going to skip over the Marito Reacto because I think you'd, we'd kind of already spoken about that. Yeah. How about the Seika Exceed? The Seeker Exceed, the bike that I Seeker. cannot sell. Here we go. Sitting <laughs> right here next to me. So this is the one out of all the Chinese bikes that I have uh, ridden or had a go at riding. This is, now it's going to fall over. Um, this is the one that I like the most. Um this is the one when I ride it and the people were saying, oh yeah, you're getting paid by cycling 100 to say that. And look, that, that turned into a big shit show, that whole experience. And like I was getting paid $800 USD for three videos. So what's that like thousand dollars Australian? Like it's not much money. And I'm just like, it frustrated me how people were like, yeah, saying, yeah, let's just it's sponsored content because I'm not, I'm not going to do a review and tell you that it's amazing because I'm getting paid that amount of money. In fact, like I wouldn't do it for any amount of money because then like people unsubscribe, they don't want to, you know, you've got a credibility that you've got to try and uphold to because that's how you've built your channel over five years. You know, throw that all at the bin for, you know, what's essentially a few, well, $3,000 across, you know, a, a certain period of time. But that relationship, just to go down a slight rabbit hole here, went, went south. I don't know if you ever saw a video I published about their Vortex No Compromise wheels, had a hub oscillation issue in it. Well, that didn't go down well, but I had full freedoms and, you know, people were buying the wheels and asking me about it. So I felt the responsibility. It's like, well, this is an emerging player. You know, I'm helping them promote the business. There's an issue with the wheels. The wheels were quite expensive. So I published that video and that was before the final review. So our relationship had already gone south before that. And the guy that I was had the relationship with, um, the main guy, I believe has since left the business. He was an expat from the UK living in China. So that What's going on with Cycling 100? Um, I don't. It's it's all a bit bizarre. And interestingly, the guy that does run it is a guy called Chain, who is supposed to be like a like a commentator and a personality in China, which makes you think well, surely he's got a reputation to uphold. Mm. But anyway, that's like besides the point. The Seeker is really really a uh, good all round um, uh, race bike. Like you can use it for climbing because it's lightweight. It's got that the aerodynamics you would typically get on an aero bike um it's stiff but it's not overly stiff so it's quite comfortable you know i took it on a few hundred mile or 160 kilometer rides and got back and i wasn't stiff and sore and then you know the upper body and, and the lower so it's a really a really good bike the only issue with it is what gary identified in the uh the scan was because it's so light the material is quite thin but the layup is very thin. So if you're going to be riding it in aggressive situations or hit big potholes, you know, you could, you could run into an issue, but it's a, it's a great bike. Uh, and it's a shame about what's happened with cycling 100. It's funny how you had like a fallout with the company yeah. with on the bike that you actually really liked. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, 
but I've told heaps of people that I know to buy it and they bought it and they've had great experiences. So, uh, you know, I wasn't, it's like, I feel like I'm a standalone use case. It's uh, and looks, I think seeker have gone elsewhere now or they're going elsewhere that they're definitely using. Like there's a, a company, um, you know, a, a bike shop in Melbourne, um, creative cycle works that I know that are building them, for example, Michael Redding. Um, so yeah, you, there are other ways you can, you can buy them. I asked Joe about them actually after our chat and he, he, it was one of the brands he didn't know a lot about because he seemed to be suggesting there was a lot of change happening with the, the leadership of it, the management of it, even, even sort of where it was being built. So he was kind of like, just hold off, hold off sort of going, talking to any of those sort of guys. So anyway, we'll see, but that's, that's an interesting one actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one. Uh, similar mold, really, I suppose, is the Trifox. Never wrote it. It's funny. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> the guy, so I finally sold it. Uh, it was on the marketplace for a long period of time. And of course, I've published some videos about it that aren't that favorable. So I, I couldn't imagine it being overly popular. But um, yeah, a guy came around. He offered, like, he lowballed me. And I said, mate, if you can just take it out of my office, just, yeah, you can have it for 1500 bucks. And I think the whole thing cost me maybe 3200 or something like that. So I got less than half price for it. When he came to pick it up, he said, what's it like to write? And I said, I haven't written it. He said, what, not not even once? And I said, <laughs> no, you, you're about to take on his maiden voyage because he, was, he wanted to take it for a spin around the block. I was like, mate, have a look at it. There was dust on it. The chain was perfect. It was just like, so yeah, it's finally gone. Never wrote it. Didn't deserve any of my time and energy. And I've got... People think it's crazy, but like, I don't get to ride that much because I'm, you know, family commitments, you know what it's like, Chris, and I'm sure Jesse, you will very soon. You, you're probably busy with other stuff as well. So I only ride out, out on the road two to three mornings a week, maybe four max and obviously travel and weather. Like it really, there's not many opportunities to ride on the road. So I'd much rather take out one of these other bikes and test it and review it versus, Tell versus them that. that. Should have just told him it rides like an SL7. That's close enough. Yeah. Everyone else does. <laughs> um last the last one was a relatively recent one which is the polygon helios i'm now i'm not sure if you've ridden that one either to be honest just started to ride it and look early days but you know i'm kind of thinking back to when i did the triple header which i've mentioned a few times now which was the the wind space t1500 versus the mid-tier merida and the mid-tier um giant propel that one would probably be at the top of the list because it's in that same five to six grand um, price bracket. And like, it's, it's very, you look at the tube shapes and the way it's designed, it's, it's, they're not trying to flash. Like this one's obviously, you know, mm. looks very different. Um, whereas that kind of looks like what you would expect and it rides. You know, so far, like I'm, I'm giving it, you know, big ticks and the fact that you can just buy them now, like bikes online, like if you want that bike, you can just go buy it is a big, big plus as well. So yeah. I, if, if people are out there watching this and they're thinking about a polygon, I've ridden it five times now and I'm... It looks very similar to the Devel that we're on. If you look at the tube shapes, like even the seat post, oh uh, the really? saddle clamp, similar look, the rear end of it. So if it rides anything like the Devel, it'll handle very well. It'll sprint well. It'll be stiff. Probably not super compliant, but it'll be just sort of an all-rounder. Yeah, if you go to <laughs> threshold of 450, you'll go world tour. That's basically how good it is. Yeah. So, yeah. Chris, are you going to tell us what bike you're on? Because I, I see this sort of labelled um, <laughs> bike that's been done by Bunny Hops and it looks really cool, but what is it? 
It's, it's, it's the Nero 001, mate. Okay. It's, uh, no, look, I, I'm not. I'm actually not going to tell people. And I'm in, semi-enjoying the, the kind of uh, play out of it. Um, I'm enjoying not owing anything to anyone about it. Yeah, it's um, – I don't know it pisses some people off, but um, that's it's kind of maybe my prerogative to it. Or maybe I'll unveil it at some point, but I'd like to do it in a kind of fun – way because I think a lot of that stuff can be a little bit too serious. All right, you kicked up a bit of a storm this week, Cam. Opportune time to have you on. Everyone's shouting about fiberglass in their steerer. Jesse, I know you're maybe interested in this. I'm not particularly interested. <laughs> well, no, it's just that I'm not sure I should be caring about this. Well, I just thought it was interesting because I thought I think I know a lot about bikes and I had never heard or seen fiberglass in a steerer. And suddenly it seems like perhaps every third or fourth frame has uh, fiberglass in there. So it was kind of mind-blowing from my point of view. Yeah, and look, I, I I had actually heard... So when I visited BMC and I spoke to their chief operating officer, Mark Hewitt, he talked because he spent a lot of time in China. And he was saying, because we this was in the video where um, they copped a lot of grief trying to justify the price of their bikes, as you could imagine. And talking about like a lot of the low-end frames, they put a lot of fiberglass in there to as a cost-cutting mechanism. And I was like, really? You can put fiberglass in a frame without actually having to, you know, say it on your website? Because I always think of like ingredients and food, you've got to label everything that's in the food, but obviously bikes are a lot different. Then I kind of forgot about it until I took, I should say, uh, this fork right here. Uh, I don't know if the camera's going to pick that up. Oh yeah, we got it. on On my face into see Gary at Carbon Steed and like I've taken him a lot of frames and forks before and obviously he he's not an engineer and he's not a um, composites expert but you know he deals with carbon fiber all day every day and he's had two successful businesses now and knows a lot about carbon fiber and bike and he just looked at this without even looking at the frame and said this one is you know half made of fiberglass and I was like okay wow that's interesting and then we created the video and uh, as a result, there's been a fair bit of backlash and I think we've identified there's a fair bit of ambiguity when it comes to fiberglass in the steerer. Um, I know GC and Luke made some great content as well on this, investigating their forks, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, probably link to those videos below this one if people want to check it out. And it was interesting to see their, you know, the, the forks that Luke had because he had a whole bunch of cheap Chinese frames in um, his closet or wherever they are. And of course, GC, um, he, you know, he knows a lot more about bikes um, than I would ever know about. He builds bikes and, you know, he pulled off the um, uh, the handlebars and showed us inside these these steerers and showed some top-end steerers with, with fiberglass. So, you know, it all becomes a little bit confusing for, I guess, the general consumer. I don't know, are you guys a little bit confused now or where are you at with it? My sense of, like, GC... <laughs> GC's reaction was like, it's hard to get him riled up about anything, seemingly. But he seemed to, and I didn't particularly take this, the narrative of your your video was it was almost like punching down on these frames. Uh, and he was, I suppose, turning it around and going, well, hang on, but this stuff also appears in all these high-end ones. A couple of days later when Luke puts his up and, and they were probably even cheaper bikes than the elves, like half the price of the elves one, and there was no fiberglass in them. So, yeah, I mean, I am kind of fascinated by this now because it doesn't seem to actually be any rhyme or reason to who's doing this. And I did reach out to 
two mechanics here in Sydney. One had never actually even heard or noticed it. I'm not sure whether that was a comment on that particular mechanic <laughs> or not. But the other one was, yeah. yes, 50-50, guys, 50-50 between – and this is, a, this is a place that works on dogmas and cell bike commuters. So, yeah, I, I kind of think it's sort of fascinating. Yeah. And look, uh, I guess to add another layer to to Gary's point, and look, I, I just need to put my hand up that I, I typically never talk about this. I'm either taking a bike in to see Aaron, who's um, Dobbs, who's a you know professional mechanic, same as Jay Taylor, Taylor Cycles, or obviously Gary, who's dealing with carbon. So this goes above my pay grade. But from my understanding, what Gary is really getting at with this fork, um, at times there's a really thick layer of fiberglass in there. So, you know, GC talked about you know, he used the term thin layer or residue of, of fiberglass, which seems to make sense. I guess when you've got a, a layer, which at times is over, you know, about half as thick as the, the carbon fiber, the, the issue you can have from my understanding is the materials don't tend to get along so well. Um, so if they start to separate or, or delaminate, then there may be areas in your steerer, which goes from what should be around two millimeters thick to less than say a millimeter thick. So I can maybe send you some um, footage that, of Gary ultrasounding. You'll see it go to 0.8 at times in this steerer. And what the ultrasound does is it's not actually looking for carbon fiber. It's just looking for a back wall. So it measures through to try and find a back wall. And if it's finding a 0.8 area, well, that's suggesting that the two materials have separated. So then you've got to ask mm. that if there's a really thick layer of fiberglass and there's a possibility that the materials uh, separating, does that create uh, stru structural issues in the steerer? And if I'm flying down, so we're taking into a real world example, if I'm flying down a hill at 80 k's an hour and I hit a pothole, is that going to be an issue? Now, I'm mm. not an expert in this space. I don't know the answer to that question, but yeah, that, I think that's what Gary's getting at. It's not so much that there's fiberglass in there, it's that actually a third to a half of this steerer is made of fiberglass. Right. Is there any um, indication from Gary that fiberglass is used elsewhere in a bike or he's seen fiberglass used elsewhere in a bike? Uh, he said he, he's seen it as some cheaper, um, I don't know if I can use the brand names, but um, some mainstream brand names like years ago in their cheaper models. He used to see it quite often um, in the steerer and in the frames, but he very rarely sees it anymore and uh like to be fair you know he's he's typically dealing with more mainstream brands you know uh canyon specialize uh, i'm not saying that they're, they're the ones that are cracking and failing but they're that, that's when i go in there that's that's what i see um yeah this lower end emerging chinese stuff you know the only stuff he sees is, is from me the fair old rabbit hole it's probably the biggest rabbit hole that i've ever been on in my youtube history and I think for me, it's been a real learning process. And I think it has been for a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, because of the BMC relationship, I can't tell you how many people are now saying that this is BMC sponsored content and I'm doing it for oh, BMC. Oh, full conspiracy. Brilliant. Full I love conspiracy. it. It's, it's unbelievable. Yep. I've, I've actually, the first few I laughed at, and then there was like, I stopped, I had to stop looking at the comments because I was like, oh, there's actually quite a lot of people saying this and i'm like it kind of it just blows my mind it's like bmc are paying me millions of bucks and i'm in there to take down the whole emerging space <laughs> it's so funny it really blows my mind brilliant a planted 
fiberglass controversy yep. to then shine a light on the extremely wonderful product. I love it. I th- yep. I'm on board with this. Fantastic. Yeah. And yep. what, what people neglect, because people are saying below that video as well, uh, you know, you're scrutinizing these frames and now, you know, the tables have turned. I started this whole process buying an Els Fallow, the original frame, not the UCI approved one you can see behind me, anonymously. And I took it in to see Gary and he said the Trifox was really average, you know, poor quality. And this Els Falloth, it's too good to be true. It's like they've handpicked this one. Like I'm really surprised. And I, I published that video and everyone was fine. As soon as Gary says something negatively, it's like, oh, it's all. Like if I told Gary, uh, if I said, Gary, I want you to say this, he'd say, get the fuck out of my place. That's the kind of guy he is. Like he just tells it how it is. So it's just interesting to see the, see the reactions. And I guess if you've, if you've invested in one of these bikes and you know you, you're riding it and you like it, you you may not like what what you've heard or what you've seen. But at the end of the day, like I don't think it's anything on else. I think a lot of companies are doing it, and this is one piece of content that's kind of opening the door, so we can all become a bit better educated about fiberglass being used in our bikes. Can I play um sort of I guess devil's advocate on the whole thing in that this yep. is something that Chris and I talked about in that a lot of the content around these cheaper frames does appear to be uh, first look uh, inside the frame with the torch, in your case, going a step further and taking it to a carbon expert. A lot more in terms of, I guess, explaining if the frames are safe and not actually riding them and, and reviewing them as much. Whereas in the mainstream brands, there's almost, even though they have a heap of recalls, SL7 had that fork recall and there's recalls all the time. Uh, those frames, in terms of the content that gets put out, doesn't appear to be in any way uh, as much safety related. It's more in terms of how they ride. So just in the the perception, if I go on YouTube and look at the types of videos coming up around these cheap frames versus the established frames, there does appear to be a disparity there. 100% agree with you. And I think people are doing it because, you know, there's a, it's cheaper, it's from China. China is renowned, um, at least from my experiences, of being quite hit and miss. So there's a quality assurance aspect to it that we're all a little bit nervous about. And I think that's why we go to these lengths. Um, whereas like, do I trust that a giant or a BMC or a specialized are going through stringent QA process processes? But yes, I am. Do I know they'll stuff it up every now and then and get a batch of bikes wrong? Yeah, they probably will, but they'll, they'll fix it straight away. So that's just my opinion. That's, that's, that's from my experiences. Whereas these other emerging brands, the trust factor isn't quite there yet. I think Windspace has done a good job. They've kind of emerged. Um, but the other ones, not so sure about. And I think that's why they're getting interrogated, right, rightfully or wrongfully so. That's mm. just my thoughts on it. I sort of feel like the – I mean, you. this is an interesting chat, I reckon, with yourself, Cam, because you were kind of one of the, I suppose, the leaders of this charge when it came to – when did you – so when did you revert, review – or first look, your first China. Was it the wind space? It, it was the wind space, and I, I was a bit apprehensive about it. This is about three years ago, and you raised an interesting yeah. point over, over email about you know, the, the, the sentiment below those videos about buying from China and um, you know, all that, which has kind of changed a lot now. But yeah, it was about three, three years ago I decided to take the plunge, and a lot, I'd had a lot of comments from channel supporters wanting me to go down the path and investigate because obviously I've been reviewing bikes and doing bikes on the channel for a long period of time. So I started 
it, and it's become a massive rabbit hole ever since. So that's that's kind of my point. Is like I feel that the whole narrative on YouTube shifted in that time because I remember even when I did. So we rode the Devels, which were an emerging Filipino brand, twenty twenty. And at the end of that year, I did like a review of that bike. And I can remember the comments underneath. It, and this bike was like, the, the frame was, I think, 1100 US dollars. And it was all like, oh, another crappy open mold, waste of time. Why would you do the waste? Don't waste your money. You'll just buy three of them. And, and that was the, the overall narrative to, to all the comments underneath it. And... I would argue if, if you if you reviewed an unknown brand now, that it would be totally shifted. The the commentary would be very much, oh, here we go, more pressure on giant, more pressure on specialized. Here we go. This is another great, great thing to happen. And it's it's interesting because I I, I don't actually feel like the um well, no, that's not true. I do feel like it's it's moved, but there's certainly a lot more um uh, there's a lot more groundedness to everything we've seen come out. Um, but have you, you've definitely seen that in, in your own videos that you've put up. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think they're getting, I think they're actually just from my content alone, like in my little world, the brands, when something is happening, um, you know, even from, even from an else perspective, from the Jay Taylor build with the pre-production model, like they picked up some things that he said and I, I saw in that anonymous frame that they sent me, I saw that actually taken that feedback on board and, and changed it. So I think that they're, they're evolving. The consumerism surrounding it is, is definitely shifting. It's kind of emerging at the right time because mainstreams become so expensive. And it's interesting. I was speaking to my my dad about this who's in his 70s and, and he, he kind of said, oh, sounds like the Japanese electronics products in the 1960s when they kind of emerged as this, you know, powerhouse in electronics and initially if you bought like a chinese-based electronics product everyone was like oh that's that's crap it's going to fail it's not going to work properly but then over time they they worked and worked on it now they're one of the you know powerhouses in the world when it comes to electronics and i feel like you know this could be on a similar path you know like it's emerging it's come so far as you said chris just from a consumerism point of view in the last three years where is it going to be you know you guys this morning i was you were talking about one of the shows in china um, you know, where's it going to be in another three years? And but there'll probably be a point in time where we don't, we're not so much worried about quality assurance with these brands um, and we can just buy them for a third of the price and, and we're happy with it. I guess one of the issues then is, you know, are they going to be, and we talked about this offline, um, you know, are they still going to have the, the same issues in terms of resale? Because that's, that's an issue that I've faced at the moment versus, versus mainstream. Um, but certainly I, I think they're on, they're on a good path and they seem to be learning and developing, which is what you want to see. Can we have a little, can we have a little YouTube chat? Yeah. Cause just don't, don't, don't you guys have a beef? Isn't, isn't there a beef here? Like Jesse Coyle, you know, Cam Nichols, Jesse's, Jesse's out there having a go at people. Like what do you, what do you reckon, Cam? I'm a bit worried about him. Well, you know, I was on the receiving end uh, about 12 to 18 months ago, uh, which, look, I, it's just a bit of, it was just a YouTube video, but I was kind of like, it was funny, but I was watching someone, a channel supporter sent me the video and uh, I watched it. And I, the first thing that came to my mind, because Jesse had done a bit of work uh, with the RCA when we were getting it off the ground, and I wanted him to have a good microphone for, you know, because he was making a couple of videos about using today's plan and all this. So the first 
thought I had is, is Jesse ripping into me on YouTube using the microphone that I bought for him? <laughs> can you can you uh, confirm or, or deny that, Jesse? Well, that's what we're speaking on. That's what I'm speaking on now. Oh, well, there you this go. This is paid for Road Cycling Academy content. That's hilarious. Exactly right. Um, so the yeah, thing is, and then, when I... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you, you go, please. I was just going to say, I, like, I just say what I think. I mean, surely other people have similar thoughts. I mean, maybe they don't say it as often, but, I, you know, I don't particularly like calling people out for stuff. I mean, I don't want the the backlash that comes along with it, but I feel like it's someone's job to just say what I think other people are thinking. Um, yeah. yeah. YouTube Terminator. I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a I nice agree. person, I think. I don't necessarily have an axe to grind. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean, that was a dickhead video that I made and I, I needed to be called out. And, uh, I, you know, I've left it there because it's part of my journey. Um so people can go back and watch it. It's me drinking a bulletproof coffee, pretending I know what I'm talking about, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so, but it is enjoyable when you know I, I saw you recently get stuck into Alex Dowsett. Um, Francis Cade was on the receiving end about his, um, you know, about his videos recently, and I'm like, Jesse's developing a bit of a, a, reputa- a reputation here of just you know calling calling it how it is and being a bit of a YouTube Terminator. <laughs> the only thing I, I that to to back myself up is I I think if you're going to call people out for things, you also have to put out your own whatever it is on something. Now I put out my own training content, which anyone's welcome to go and take shots at if they want. So I feel like if you're going to throw shade, you also got to put your own stuff out there. Um, so I feel like I try and keep it balanced, but yeah, that's what it is. It's not for everyone. Yeah. So I, I can, can I, I actually have a little take on this. Like, cause I, I know that you you watch a lot of sort of fitness content, right, or at least used to, and it's it's the thing. Like that is almost – it's like this sort of um, self – like it's its own economy where they, they comment on each other's videos, positive, negative, whatever it might be. That's, that's almost what sort of keeps the whole thing afloat. It's funny like in cycling, for some reason that was not done or is not done – and I almost feel like it shows a little bit of the immaturity a bit in in cycling that we were not really able to or not willing to. I mean, I, I don't feel like anyone's been hurt by any by anything Jesse's particularly said, but it's just the fact that him even referencing other people's videos was like, oh, I'm not sure we can even do that here, can we? And I, I like to think that that's hopefully changing, that we're maybe getting a little bit more mature, that we can kind of do that. Yeah, absolutely. To me, to me, it does. And, um, you know, I, 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 when Jesse did that, I was like, yeah, fair enough. Um, I was a little bit, I think I was a bit shocked initially just because I knew Jesse and I was like, you maybe just could have sent me an email and I could have maybe jumped in the comments early and maybe dropped, yeah, you're right, Jesse. I was a bit of a dickhead publishing that video rather than me finding out, you know, through another um source but at the end of the day like it's just a cycling youtube video at the end of the day and it's like we're having a bit of a laugh like if we can't have a laugh what's wrong with us um but i did i just on the topic of youtube well, i think you said didn't you say at one point we asked each other jesse like do we have any regrets on youtube and i think 
that was the exact regret you had that you hadn't reached out to to Cam. Yeah, exactly. Eh, you learn. And yeah. uh, but the thing is, that's not the case for every video. Like, I'm not going to message Alex Dowsett and tell him because it's like <laughs> I don't know you. So there's a certain cases yeah. where I do think, oh, I didn't really you know do that well and then other cases where i'm like ah, it's just fair comment i'll let it go um but there's other but things has, that, do you have anything well, you, you well the other thing Alex i was going to say is um, you a microphone? <laughs> no i don't know him anything <laughs> there you go well there you go <laughs> but um uh, there's definitely a an attitude where people say oh you shouldn't say anything online that you wouldn't say in person you know that kind of vibe but i i don't agree like if I meet Alex Dowsett in person, I'm not going to argue with him about a video he made. You know, I would just have a chat with him. But I would make that video because of the information I think is valuable. So I don't necessarily to subscribe to the, oh, this person said this, you know, you wouldn't say this to my face. I mean, you know, I probably wouldn't because that'd be, you know, if I met you in person, Cam, if you were a year ago, if we met up, I wouldn't chat to you about your bulletproof coffee. But <laughs> I still think there's a video there. So that's probably as well. But you'd well. still be willing to. Yeah. Is the right. point? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd still be willing to, but I, I, I do feel like the the things I make videos on isn't necessarily what I would talk to someone about if I met them in person. I watched your interview with Julian Ryder the whole forty five minutes. I really um, enjoyed it. They're in they're in the park, um, and I've got to say, I stupidly watched it late in the evening as I was cleaning up the the dishes. My wife makes makes like a horrendous mess after she cooks dinner. It takes half an hour. So I watched the whole thing. I went to bed and then I had the most bizarre dreams about you and Julian, right? <laughs> so I do not recommend watching that video late at night. Link um, not down below. You are welcome. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I'll take it once. It was actually, well, because I told my wife about this. It was so freaked out. I was like, I said, like Julian Ryder came into the house and he went upstairs with you and he was taking photos of you. And I was like, what's he taking photos of? And I was downstairs with Jesse, and Jesse was looking at my secret C going, is that the factor Ostra? And then we started testing the wheels, and Julian Ryder was still upstairs. <laughs> oh, no, it was just so bizarre, and I haven't recovered from it. So that's why I'm just like letting it out now because um, it was the weirdest <laughs> dream I've had in a long time. Anyway, um, <laughs> YouTube regrets. Um, so, number one is uh, chasing subscribers, um, going for 100,000. I went really hard at that and it's a really a hollow goal. I remember when I got there, I think I, I lost track of, um, you know, what I did YouTube for um, and I became very fixated on the algorithm and views and subscribers and um, I'm sure you, you both could attest to it. It's kind of a big dopamine rush when you're seeing your videos go off and you're getting subscribers and all this and I, I got hooked in by it and to be honest, it was an unhealthy relationship and at the end of the day, I, I said I got to 100,000, it's like you get a silver plaque but... Who cares? What cares is what what you should care about is do you enjoy making the content for one? And do you feel your content is having the impact you want it to have? Whether that be people learning about how to train better, you know, eat better nutrition, buy the right bike, etc. So that's number one. Um, the second one, I'm just gonna knock them out real quick here because I've written them down, is paid sponsorships. So I remember the channel hit sort of like 60, 70,000 um, and I started to get reached out to these brands. Everyone's, you know, the Squarespace or the, the Surfshark and um, I was like, oh, paid sponsorships. Yes, I can finally start making some decent money. Um, and I started to do it, do them and wasn't really thinking too much about them. And then they offer you, oh, we want you to do two a month. 
it's like, okay, yeah, I'll do two a month. And you, you're locked a contract for six months to do two a month. But what happens when you don't have the content or you're busy doing something else? You've written, you, you've signed a contract. I want my ad. So I ended up making content just to deliver an ad and it was shit content and people people knew about yeah. it you know like that they could tell like i i and i would literally get to wednesday and go oh, i need to make a, a friday vlog series because i was also hooked in on being consistent and i'd just make a piece of shit content in order to deliver an ad and i took the audience for granted and i really like it's not a rabbit hole and not something that i'm proud of and i, I really wish i didn't do it but i just kind of found myself there and it was a was an accident and i've kind of subsequently learned from that and this year i've I've done, you know, I'm not saying I'm not going to do paid ads in the future, but I just want to do them when they feel right. It's the right partner and, and it makes sense. Um, and yeah, also just trying to push and sell shit on YouTube. Like I've tried to sell the up-level road cycling course on YouTube through videos, like one minute segment at the start. No one wants that. It's just like, just, just give us the content, get straight into it, deliver value and you'll build rapport with that person. And at some stage, if you've got something, They'll, they'll look for it and they'll find it if they need it. So they're the three yeah. regrets. No, that's really interesting. Really interesting. I um. So do you, do you mind talking about the BMC thing? Yeah, yeah. like from a financial perspective? Yeah, if you want. Yeah, I mean, well, from a financial perspective, uh, there, there is nothing. Like BMC aren't paying me. Uh, they don't give me any money. Um, but they, as part of a ride crew member, um, I get given a bike every year. So... That means that at the end of the year, if I choose, I could sell that black BMC and that would be a revenue source for the channel if I chose so, and then I get a new bike. Um, so I, there is, I guess there is a financial component to it if you look at it that way. Um, and they, they also offer a small budget um, for uh, like, you know, if you're going to create BMC content. So for me, that'll be basically a plane ticket and some accommodation to Switzerland to go visit them again this year, make a bit of content and then fly home. So they'll, they'll fund that. Um, and, and that's it. But as I said in my video, I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of that relationship is not so much getting a bike or, you know, being able, I mean, it's, it's being able to go to Switzerland and being able to make content in their, you know, in their facilities with their bikes, um, get access to pro riders like I did with Bicky Shah. Like that's what I'm excited about because, you know, in Australia, as you know, we don't really have that, capacity to go ride with pros or make that type of content i know you have with jay vine and, and that's great but he's, he's only back every so often so just to open the door to access things i typically wouldn't be able to access that's where the value is i almost feel like playing devil's advocate in that and just saying you should be getting way more like i'm sorry like i just feel like you're getting a free a free bike and a plane tickets to, to basically shoot footage that will be great for them i'm like there is no better ambassador for the brand. There's no better ambassador that has a bigger reach across the entire sport, and that's all you get. Like, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm just like almost disgusted. But by is that, that because you want like it that knowing... way so you can rem remain more balanced, or is that just all they were willing to give you? Uh, well, look, that was the offer, and I I accepted. Uh, you know, maybe in the future, once I've proven my worth, it might be worthwhile. Um, you know, having a conversation about is, you know, is there a possibility? Because obviously that, as you both know, like, you know, making a video is 20, 30, 40 hours, 50 hours of work. Like it's a lot of work. And even if you just put like a $50 per hour on that, you know, like you're typically not getting anywhere close to that for your time with, you know, all the content we create. So 
there's definitely just value in in that for these brands because for them to go and say we want this media company to create a you know a bit of content on our bike what are they paying for that like 10 15 20 grand or something like that so i, I hear what you're saying chris um i guess for me at least initially it was more about let's dip our toe in the water um see where it takes us and maybe at some point in time we can we can look at putting more meat on the bone I and mean, that would be lovely because right now i mean i, I still struggle find out like obviously when i say struggle like you know in terms of you know um just general living expenses and and paying for you know obviously we've got a mortgage and things like that we're not we're not you know it's things tight um but that's what that's the cost that you pay for for doing YouTube and 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 uh, you know doing your thing own thing full time versus me going back and working at a corporate desk, but I'm, I'm I'm as I've said before in content I'm I'm so much more happier now and a lot less money than I used to, but I'm I'm happier and to me that's more valuable. Oh, I I hear you. I'm just I just it just blows my mind that someone who has essentially the clout and would be the top let's let's say five. And that's probably not doing you. That's probably underselling you. In the world, that's the best a brand can offer. When I know the salaries of guys on, yeah, pro, yeah. Oh man, I'm just yeah, I'm triggered. I'm triggered here, but I'll 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 um I'll back off it. I'll back well, off it. I I appreciate um, you going to bat for me, and I'll I'll forward your sentiment to my contact at BMC. Thank you. <laughs> mm. No, but you're right. I mean, times are tough. Like we've 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 seen that. I know that was the same chat we had with Patrick and and Benji. Like times are tough. We 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 absolutely know that. And I certainly do feel like we are right in. We are right between this shift that's about to happen between where brands see value in their in their marketing to to come more into a engagement space. I I still think people underestimate the power of YouTube. Like I talk about this all the time and obviously I'm biased. Um but you know people watching this they're on YouTube, they're watching it. Um it's a watching platform. So if I put the same video on any other platform and let's use Facebook as an example, like a 10 minute video, the average watch time is going to be like 16 17 seconds on Facebook whereas on YouTube like an average video is going to be what average 50 around 50%. So 5 minutes. So you know you Let's just say you get, you know, 50,000 people watching for five minutes and it's evergreen content as well. For a brand that's huge, I mean, they used to spend 10, 10, 5, 10 grand to put their ad in a magazine. How much did they pay for that? Magazine gets picked up by 10,000 people and gets chucked out. Whereas I've got a video on a platform where it's evergreen, people can keep going back and watching it and it's hitting 50,000 people, not 10,000. So I still think there's a shift with these brands on legacy and they haven't quite worked out that actually youtube is like this incredible powerful platform where people are building rapport with the individual they're watching them do things and they make decisions based off of that how about a bit of training to you're an old bloke like me now cam um enjoying the series i have to say uh really enjoying the series about about you sort of getting getting fit again quote unquote um how of how, how, where where do you see like what what's the goal eventually? Do you, do you see something sort of on the on the horizon race wise, or is it a is it a an FTP thing? Like where where are you placing it? Uh, well, look at to be honest, it was just all uh, testing that I did at the start and at the end, and it's 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 finished. Um, it was like a a five second all out sprint, a one minute effort, um, a five minute effort, and a twenty minute effort, sort of testing your different you know, uh, physiological aspects of the neuromuscular, anaerobic, VO2 max and and threshold. And uh, I the beauty of training with power for 
since 2012, I had a lot of history. So I could look back and see, okay, what was my best power to weight um, across those segments years ago? And what can I do now? And then result was I beat three out of the four segments at 41 um, in just in terms of raw power. And I was lighter than ever as well. So yeah, it's, I guess the, 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 the series is completed. What it did for me is because I've been so focused, you know, you, you know, work and other commitments, family moving for, for quite a few years, I hadn't really done like a proper structured 12 week plan before and taken my fitness um, to a, you know, quite a high level for me. So it's given me a real appetite. You know, we spoke over social media um, to next year, come do the Grafton to Inverell. And I've been sniffing around looking for events and stuff like that. So that's where it's going to ultimately lead to. But for me, it was just more about, you know, can I beat my old self using these power segments? And unfortunately, where I live in the Sunshine Coast now, there's not a ton of racing. And, and the racing that's here, like, you know, you might get two or three in A grade. And then because there's limited numbers, they'll merge A into B. And it's not, you know, it's not your your Melbourne Glenvale or, or Sandown or I know you have Heffron. Um, you can go down to Brisbane and race. And I did a couple of races in Brisbane because the crit scene's awesome in Brisbane. They do it on a Saturday morning as well, which I reckon's epic. So you can go do your Saturday morning crit, go for a ride afterwards and you're done four or five hours and you can have your, your Saturday evening to, you know, have a few beers and you don't have to worry about Sunday. But it's an hour 45 drive there, hour 45 drive home. You get home at one and you've ridden for an hour. It's just like not worth it. So yeah, so mate, Grafton to Inverell, if you're going to go back to back, I'll, I'll try and hold your wheel for as long as I possibly can. Oh, yes. Get him in there. Absolutely. No, it's a, that's an absolute cracker. Definitely. On the training thing, Cam, um, so it was, 12, you, it was a 12-week series, was it, that you did the tra- that, that it was for, or had this been a longer process to get fit? 12. 12 weeks. How, how would you rate the sustainability of that? I always find this interesting. Do you feel like thinking about repeating that you're just filled with dread about how much how hard that was or do you feel like it was fairly sustainable look i, I mean i and you you would you would know this just as well probably better than me like there's a shelf life for structured training particularly in in in, in athletes that have like you know families and, and full-time jobs and stuff like that i feel like when people first get into structured training and they see such an increase they hang on to it and they go maybe too far they go 24 36 weeks you know six months and they'd burn themselves out and they get over it. And they might end up overtraining. For me, I reckon I probably could have gone maybe 16 to 20 weeks. And then I, I, I probably would have been, you know, maybe in a decline. Um, I did carry a bit of form into that as well. So it wasn't like I was coming in fresh. I know you did a series recently where you trained up for the nationals and you still were doing nothing. So you needed quite a big build. Whereas I was still doing on average, you know, seven or eight hours per week leading into this. Um so yeah, I could have kept going. The big challenge for me was, and anyone that follows my content will know that the the uh, the content was very slow during that um, series. And the reason for it was, I just wrap, you know, in order to increase my training load, which means I also had to increase my recovery. So I was also going to the pool two or three times a week to stretch out my old man hip flexors. I was doing sauna. I was doing stretches. Like that's an additional four five hours a week that I would normally put into work. So. It really mm. took away from work um, and also, you know, you, you turn into a bit of a grumpy brick as well around your family at times, which I don't really like because you're a bit tired and fatigued with work and training. So th- there's like the practicality element of it and that's why at 12 weeks I'm like, you know what, I, I don't think I should keep going even though I kind of wanted to. Mm. That's interesting. So- yeah. I always like to ask just, 
don't know, so I've done some of my training blocks. I feel like, like there's no way I could go on with this. Um, and then other ones I feel a bit more sustainable. So I just. So what do you, what in your experience, what do you feel, feel is an optimal period to do like a, a high intensity structured block? 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 20 weeks? Yeah. Physiologically, three to four months, but it de- depends on, I mean, especially if you're busy like you are, it's going to be less because the thought of committing to yeah. four months of that is probably so daunting that you probably wouldn't even start it again. Whereas think about eight, 10, maybe Dang. 12 weeks is a bit more manageable with life. Um, but then it's all, it, that's all predicated yeah. on doing what you did, which is not when you finish that, not just throwing the towel in and then creating four or five months of work when you decide six months later that you're motivated again. So that's, that's why I was interested in how sustainable that felt because, you know, ideally you'd find that, you know, you'd potentially find more of that middle ground to run that all year round. And then you're just, you're doing those little eight to 10 week blocks into, let's say a Grafton, um, where you get that nice peak in fitness and then you're racing pretty well as opposed to having to do a massive multiple month. And something that I sort of neglected this time around, um, because I haven't done a proper structured 12 week high intensity block for quite a long period of time is I went and did the, uh, a bunch ride the other day and everyone's like, man, she's riding well. And I was like, oh yeah. And look, I've been very inconsistent since I finished that block, which is probably five weeks ago now. But the lingering, you know, fitness that you gain from going, you know, a proper periodized plan for 12 weeks is actually, you really maintain your fitness for longer compared to say just riding a lot for 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, I find noticeable. And I find it's really uh, dangerous because you hit the peak of that particular set of that particular block. You maybe hit your target event. You do whatever, well, whatever, but then you've got this new fitness and you're like, Oh shit, what do I do with this? This is amazing. And I did it after Grafton. I just kept rolling it on and I'm rolling it in. I'm trying to find crits and whatever it is to kind of do. And I was loving it. And then I got sick and yeah. I, I, I do believe that the severity of, of how sick I got was due in a way to how I was just burning myself into a ground after, after that, after that um, peak. And I will take back none of it. Can I just tell I, you right I'd now? I'd say I reckon I most of that's a coincidence, Chris. I'd push back on you. You just got a particularly severe case of COVID. I wouldn't blame you for... You Potentially, were. but I was enjoying my plateau. Don't, don't you, don't you take me off my plateau. I was plateau. interesting in that video, the nutrition part of that, um, the end of that series, Cam, where you, you kind of mentioned that you, you, you just started eating enough and how big uh, the breakfast was before Tour of Brisbane. I think how many grams of carbs you had and, and how many you had during the event, which seems pretty simple in hindsight, but do you think you were held back by what, because maybe you've never considered yourself like an athlete that you never felt like you deserved to or needed to eat that much, even though you knew, oh, yeah, I heard advice I should, but I'm not that serious. I'm just, I'm 40 years old, so I probably don't need to. Do you think that mentality held you back? Um, I, It's a good question. It's a, it's, it's when I look at myself and just how many times have I heard, you know, I've seen one of your videos or Steph Cronin, who I've interviewed and edited the videos, talk about you know the the required carbohydrate load before 
enduring and not implemented it myself. But when I reflect, I haven't done much racing or, or big events um, outside of crits for like probably, you know, five, six years. Um, so, and five, six years ago, I was very much old school in my mentality. So, you know, I, I, I hadn't really had a need to really narrow in on it. So obviously paying someone as well, when you're paying them, you tend to listen a lot more. <laughs> so she said, yeah, this is how much carbohydrate you want to take. And I was like, really? Okay. I was, I was a bit of a skeptic. Yes. And that, perhaps that's why I hadn't properly listened before. And yeah, I was blown away. Um, and I still am to this day by what impact it's having to my training. Like even now I just went out and did a sweet spot session the other day because I felt like doing some intensity and, you know, I had 50 grams of carbs before I got on the bike. I probably did 60 to 90 during um i would never have done that before and as a result my recovery is better i feel less fatigued in the afternoon um i'm probably performing better those sweet spot if it's feel easier to get through like the effect the run-on effect from fueling properly and i'm preaching to the converted here but for somebody that was doing it wrong is just huge really is and a lot of people i've had a graders come up to me at you know um since that saying oh, i wasn't fueling i'm starting to do it now because they watch my content and I'm, like, I'm really surprised. And it's like, it's, it's so obvious to those people that know it and do it all the time, but there's so many people that still don't. But that's why I think it's a confidence thing that people that, that's to say the average sort of B grader doesn't feel like they're an question. athlete. So mm. even though they know, or they've seen it, they haven't registered. And I feel like Chris, like, <laughs> I don't want to sound arrogant. I feel like I've rubbed off on you when we go to these grand fondos together and you're like, even though you know, if I asked you how much do I need to do X, Y, Z, you know, but it's not until you've seen me do it that you're like, oh, I actually need to do that. But perhaps it's just a confidence or, or seeing it in practice. I just feel like there's a big disconnect between the information people have access to and know versus what they actually decide to go and do. It's one thing to say this stuff about the fueling. It's another thing to actually do it on the day because there is lots of parts of that where it is uncomfortable and, and we're all so used to eating on the bike in a reaction to what the way we feel and also wow. um, we're, we're led by our gut in the sense that, in, and this is 100% what, what I experienced with, with the fueling that you kind of suggested to me, that like there are there are periods of that where you it's not a nice feeling having ninety grams of carbs in your body for six seven hours like it's not nice, and and but the trade off of it is in the last few hours of the event. So I think a lot of people set out with the right mindset. Yep, I'm going to do this. I know the numbers. I've written it here on my stem. I'm going to go for it. And then they get to hour two and they're like, oh, this is. I don't like the way this feels. So they stop for an hour and you kind of can't. Though, though I will say this, I really feel like we have to stop this chat. We have to change this narrative entirely. I'm really worried the more I turn up to events that the only thing that I had had it as an advantage over people was that I was fueling myself properly and that's going out the window. So we need to bring back low carb, Bacon, avocados, yeah. on the bike, bulletproof coffee. Yes. Let's go for it, guys. I, I just, I'm seriously worried about this. Another anecdote. I had the same thing with Jay when I was sort of training for nationals and I was starting to think about my equipment. Um, he was like, oh, what, are you, what equipment are you going to run? I said, oh, I might run these wheels. And, and he's like, no, 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 don't run those. They're too heavy. Don't run those. Don't run those tires. They suck. 
I was like, oh, like I knew, I knew I should run the Vittoria courses and I knew I should run lighter wheels, not the ones I had on. But it wasn't until someone just said it to my face and I was like, yeah, what? Like, I'm going to go and optimize this now. Even though I knew it's just for some reason, I was just sort of sleeping on it. I just, I see it more and more often when you kind of got to really slap someone in the face with um, whatever the, the information is now. Can I, can I throw, because I feel like you guys are throwing all the questions at me. Can I, can I throw, can we go Let's a go. little bit off topic now? And can I throw one at you boys? Yeah. Go for it. So the state of Australian road cycling, national road series level, I've been, you know, and I think this, for those American and, and UK viewers as well, I think this isn't just an Australian thing. I think maybe not so much US, but certainly UK. Um, that there's been some challenges um, over the last five to 10 years with, you know, teams folding, um, you know, races going ahead, um, the level of people being able to get to races. Um, it just seems to be really, really diminishing. Um, and obviously, I've, well, obviously, but I'm quite close to um, one of the big Australian teams, external to you guys. Uh, Cam McKim's a good mate of mine who runs Inform Racing and they folded last year. You fold, you guys, you know, hung up your boots last year. And I know there was maybe one or two other teams. So it's, it's kind of sad to see because you want to see these leagues or divisions there to help you know develop the young crop coming through so we can see more aussies in the tour de france or tour of italy or whatever it may be and without it there you're kind of wondering are we missing out on that are these kids not getting the opportunity that they deserve so from your experiences what's going on uh, I know it's a I'll big start. question uh, i guess um from a talent development perspective national series is called the nrs so well what is the nrs it's essentially just talent development because there's no one making money in the NRS itself. So as a league, it's essentially just a talent development pool to send riders to bigger teams overseas. So having it not run, uh, we can get into the reasons why it's basically a shadow of what it was. But I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing. It's never been easier to travel overseas. Uh, most of the teams running now, I would say probably put half their energy into or if not more, into running an overseas program. So there's multiple domestic teams over in Europe racing, doing a whole schedule of racing. And yeah, so it's never been easier, even for an individual to fly over to Europe. I get messages from people all the time. Hey, Jesse, I want to go race in Europe. Where should I go? What sort of races can I do? And these are just individuals. They're not guys on teams. So in terms of sending riders pro, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. Because you can just go overseas now. You can basically just skip the, the middleman. So, 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 do you think the focus then is because I know your team um, did the the stint in was it Belgium last year or the year before? Um, and I know Pro Racing Sunshine Coast, a local team here. So, some guys that work with the RCA as well, and girls, Georgie Whitehouse and Craig Wiggins, they've been over in Belgium racing with their team now. So, has the focus then more shifted with the teams that are, well, there's not many teams. Have, up and running these days, but the teams that are there to put less of a focus on the Australian domestic racing interstate and more and on getting over to, to a, say, a, a domestic team now. But the thing is, it's not even that much more expensive. So first thing is you get you get your riders to pay for the, if you're a smaller team with less of a budget, your riders probably pay for their flights. And the riders probably split the ACOM costs. Uh, if you're a UCI team and you get an entry into an overseas race, a lot of the races will give you start money. <laughs> which is weird to think about in Australia. They'll pay you. Uh, one of the races we got, one of the one-day races, I think we got 400 euro back. 
just for entering. So, wow. The actual ec- uh, the economics of going over and doing a racing stint overseas, especially with younger riders, their parents probably helping out or guys are working, it can work just fine. And then in terms of the, te- the, the that's how you're going to get noticed. I mean, there's, there's no weld to a scouts overlooking at a battle on the border NRS race uh, here in here in Australia. So. Yeah, I think you'll just see the teams now just go, okay, pretty much scrap the Australian racing. Let's just focus on supporting a good two to four months over in Europe. And the end result is, I would argue, better than doing, a, I guess, a, a domestic series that you would have done five or six years ago. So, yeah, talent's a win-win. I haven't spoken much about it on on the channel, um, certainly on, on the show, Really, to give a really short backstory, we started the team in 2017 just as a sort of a small little NRS team. Um, we So it was just myself and Dan really doing that. And then 2020, we, we took on a Continental license. So I had Luke helping me out more at that point and then uh, Jesse really helping out in the last couple of years as well. And so really what was that, five, six years? And at the time we... I really thought that we were trying to do something differently. Like we were trying to buck the trend of what the the standard bike team was was doing. And and by that I mean um, we did things like uh, we had an open EOI, so anyone could just apply to the team. This was a Conti, eventually a Conti team, and you could just apply to this team on the internet like any other person to try and get rid of that whole oh you've got to DM the guy. You know, that you got to know him from the bunch ride. It's like, no, no, you just apply like everyone else. Things like that. We had a no dickhead clause in our team. A, leg- a legitimate no dickhead clause was in their contract. And we, so we were trying to, because obviously I came from a club sport background with cricket and rugby, and I really wanted that to be part of the, the cycling sphere because I felt like that was a really important thing to do with the sport. And that was sort of the team. But then off the road, like – this the channel. The whole reason that this sort of came about was was to try and show people domestic racing. So I would make like, you know, those backstage pass videos that Orica used to do, and I used to try and do those for like Grafton and Inverell and um, Tour of Gippsland and all the all the kind of domestic racing that we were doing. Still, really, really proud of, really proud actually of being involved with a lot of these guys. You know, and they're now men like really proud of that development, the maturity of that a lot of these guys have taken on and not just the people that went well to it, just guys who, you know, became really mature adults in that, in that time. So I'll always be super proud of that. Um, but ultimately the money side of it just exploded and that came alongside the races getting fewer and farther between and less reliable. So you not only had less races, the races were less reliable and you had a governing body that wasn't interested in promoting its own races. So perfect example is um, the week before Tour of Gippsland, Cycling Australia would put out their, their weekly newsletter, you know, to all their members. Like that's a lot of members. That's a lot of clout and not one mention of the, the Tour of Gippsland which was coming up. And you're like, how can you go to a sponsor and try and sell something and try and get money off them when you the the actual competition is invisible. And you know, Jesse mentioned the money side of it. 
So, you know, our budget was was just blown out in the last few years from from the travel, from the expenses. And I don't want to go too much into it, Cam, like in terms of financially what it cost me and my wife in the last couple of years. But we had we just had sponsors pull out halfway through a year, just say, no, we're not interested in paying anymore or at all. And it's not as if you had as a as an amateur team any like I'm not going to take them to court or anything. So you just put the money in yourself and hope that the the things turn around. And why are more teams disappearing? Because more teams are discovering that's the reality of it. Now that said, I think there is a way to do a and this goes for really the UK and America across all of them, there is a way to do this that's just to strip a lot of this domestic stuff back, get rid of the get rid of the teams, get rid of the team cars, make it essentially like state open racing, open state open racing where you turn up, Jesse, Chris and Cam are there as representing Jesse, Chris and Cam. My mum and dad are on the side of the road helping me on a feed because maybe it's a 15K looped course and that we just roll through there. We get rid of all the other fat and we just have that as like a, as a breeding ground for guys, to, guys and girls to race hard. Cam and I, 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 I say all that and I'm like, and you're asking, you know, why, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And I ask you, how many of, of our videos, and they weren't very good videos, I get that, but how many of our videos about the Tour of Tweed or, you know, Tour of Gippsland did you watch? Well, I think, well, I'm probably not You can the right, say none. No, no, <laughs> you can happily say none. I think I'm probably none. not the right person to ask because, uh, you know, I know those races, they're, um, you know, races well, that I might one day do, like the Grafton to Inverell, for example. So I, I'm local, I know them, but, you know, I, I know you're, you know, well, I know, for example, my audience on YouTube is about 10, 15% Australian. The rest is the UK, USA, you know, other parts of the world. So, so they probably really, you know, you're missing out on, on that whole audience, which I, which I can, I can kind of get, I get. And it's essentially interesting to hear you say that, I guess it's from my perspective as a, you know, as a bystander, it's watching it all unfold, seeing it regress, seeing these teams Fold, uh, it just kind of look it's sad so yeah i have one little kind of anecdote that i sort of doubles the the point a little bit about oz cycling the disconnection that they have and so like when we we told we had a really good relationship luke especially had a really good relationship with kip and the guys who run um cycling in australia and we when we went to tell them that the team was folding uh they came back to us and they're like Oh, that's really sad, guys. Um, make sure you pass on a sort of a condolences and sad words to all your staff. And we were like, our staff? Like they genuinely thought that to we had this sort of full-time operation going where, you know, I would liaise with the marketing department here at Nero and we would then sort of pass that down to the, uh, you know, performance development operators. You're like, what are you talking about? And so... I, and not not to say like, you know, obviously ARA, which I do think is a model, the only model potentially for how this goes forward, the link with the university, you know, that kind of stability is, is incredibly important. And then being able to in, sort of ingrain themselves in the local community, that's, that is the future, definitely. But the reality of, of, of what an NRS team was just, yeah, the, the disconnection was incredible. Hmm. What about, I, I've heard, 
uh, the this thrown around not by the governing bodies but by some of the teams that uh, the, the the Australian government gives the governing body a fair amount of cash for track and none of it gets put into road but a lot of the trackies do road and a lot of the trackies end up getting into road cycling and potentially representing Australia on the road as well but there's just there's very little if not all, any money put into to road so why don't they put a bit of this track money into road saying there's a lot of synergy it's yeah i mean it's a really good point and again it's one, something that's pretty common throughout the uk and the us but the way we structure it here is that we get funding for gold medals and gold medals come on the track gold medals uh, you can you, it's a far more uh, calculative approach to getting a gold medal because you can work on this one athlete and they are in a final against four other people and that is the way to get the gold medal if you put a lot of money and resources into said road rider the chances of said road rider winning the men's women's road race is far less now you're dead right you're dead right and it angers me a lot because Sure. Yes, a lot of money will go onto the track and um, ultimately those guys, and God love them, like Luke, friend of the show, just a friend actually, he has benefited from that and he is now a well-paid well paid professional athlete and you could argue uh, he's a well-paid professional athlete paid for by in Australian tax dollars, whereas guys like Jay who were not in that program had to do it a very different and more expensive time consuming way. So there is a lot of imbalance in the way it, it takes place. And I, I was really hopeful when cycling Australia amalgamated and became this one entity that we would have one voice and one voice would talk across all the disciplines and we would, we would see the benefits of that. But unfortunately it seems like, all it's actually resulted in is they've doubled down more on what wins gold medals and not what gets people on bikes. Mm. Well, the only thing I would say is uh, cycling can't do anything with no money. I mean, they deleted the National Road Series social media, so it's impossible to follow. They don't even do the stuff that's free, like post the results of the races that are on. So if they can't even do the absolute bare minimum with no money, who they don't deserve more money like they're just in my opinion they're just totally incompetent and uh yeah don't deserve any more cash we've pretty much ticked off any boxes you want to mention anything else cam or are you what do you reckon yeah oh, look, i would just like to congratulate you both on the podcast I, I think you're doing a really good job uh i actually called myself out the other day i got on the trainer on a friday morning and i know you you do your podcast on a friday morning and i actually went into your channel chris to see if you'd actually uploaded a video and I can't remember the the last time I've done that with any channel. So I'm like, okay, well, he's definitely got something going here. And I think you both have a very good uh, dynamic together. Um, you know, Chris, I think we're seeing a side of you that I didn't really see before in your other content. I think that's because Jesse's bringing it out of you. So, um, yeah, I, I think what you've got going, I, I hope you can keep it going because you're just getting started. And um, I also appreciate the opportunity to come on and to have access to your audience. So I really appreciate that, mate. And as as sort of alluded to throughout this, I mean, there's there is a reason that you're in the the top whatever the ranking is of of cycling YouTubers. 
the 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 reality of cam that you see on camera is the reality off camera. He's absolutely the most genuine genuine person. Though I will say that, to be honest, that's pretty much a common thread with anyone that seems to be sort of making it in this space. That people can kind of see through bullshit very very quickly, and so the people that tend to float to the top are the people who don't have any bullshit about them. So yeah, no, we and we really appreciate you coming on. Um. Yeah, look, I think we should probably wrap it up then, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, obviously, links below to to Cam's channel, the the videos. I that know he we was always say it's to, as if people don't. You know. don't need links Cam to Cam's channel. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's what's the freaking <laughs> point? If you're on cycling YouTube, you know Cam. We'll link to my drive. Uh, JC, though, thank you for your time, and thank you to uh, thank you to Jesse's uh, carpet um, man who's working away in the background there. And yeah, we will we will see you real soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.